0: I was stuck. I don't know how to put it into words. And me and my brother went and I begged the dealer for a 20 front. Please, man, I'll pay you later. I got to go steal something to find the money so I can get you this money. I need it. I'm dying. And I remember me and my brother in the backseat of the car and I put the heroin in the spoon and I spilled some of it. And I was so mad because that heroin was supposed to go in my veins. I looked in the spoon and I could see my face reflection off of it. And I was just like this has got to end you have to beat this there's something my dad did teach me never give up son
1: today's episode is an absolute classic because our guest Derek Lambert is just so candid and emotional as he tells quite an incredible story Derek grew up with an alcoholic father in a religious household as you all hear he goes through some incredible highs and terrible lows mostly lows really in his adolescence falling into addictive use of opiates and becoming addicted to heroin he also became devoutly religious. I don't know which is worse. Just kidding, religious people. Don't be angry. It's much worse to be addicted to drugs in most cases anyway. But I would just say it's going to be annoying because we have to censor out words. I remember when I first started this podcast a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago, and I really loved that this was something different from TV and all these things because I could swear and I had a lot of fun, like a child in a, in a chocolate shop, uh... Well, nothing like that really but just being able to swear and say whatever I wanted it wasn't like broadcasting standards and now uh, this goes out on YouTube that's pretty much how I earn my living and they will not allow you to earn a living and they even threaten to take your channel down if there's too much swearing or too much drug mention so i can say heroin and ecstasy and pills and things to you right now but uh we record and edit the same version that goes out on youtube so the on youtube version will be bits where he suddenly says like heroin which is heroin uh or the f word for gay people that slur which which i think maybe would would I don't know. I wouldn't have used to have censored that actually, but it's going to be censored. Um, Anyway, here is Derek Lambert, clean and sober today. uh, And he's a father. He even fathered a YouTube channel called Myth Vision. So please go check it out. Do support my guest. He's been wonderful uh, and he's got a great channel. He looks into all sorts of fascinating aspects around religion, atheism and cults, lots of crossovers with this podcast. So give it a go coming up are all sorts of fun and fascinating episodes but now you're on the edge of alcoholism and religion and some very dark places with Derek Lambert yeah. 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 tell me a little bit about your childhood and your background
0: I was born into a military household my father was a ranger and he went into the special forces uh, so he was a green beret a Halo Master, Close Quarter Combat Instructor. The guy's like a, he's like a G.I. Joe, kind of like, oh, this is the guy you'd see on a movie, uh, kind of person. In fact, he's larger than life in person. So he has that kind of mentality. My mother um, was born in Florida. She came from a poor household in the sticks of Florida, down south. And, uh, you know, she was Pentecostal um, in the religious aspect. She came from uh, speaking in tongues, even sometimes snake handling churches. So wow. my, yeah they they went in there and they were really holy rollers. My dad was Roman Catholic, and as I always tell this, the way they met is through this special thing we call alcohol. Uh, they were at a party, okay. so they met at a party, <laughs> and um, sure enough, you're like, how's a Catholic and a holy rolling snake handling uh, Christian get together? They weren't like extremely devout in that respect, but my mom was extremely. Um, She was a firm believer in this stuff. Like Every time it came up throughout her life, she was very sensitive to the idea of the words of Jesus or anything religiously related to Jesus, even to this day. And so that's the kind of environment, while my dad was off to war or overseas trying to go kick the butt of bad guys or help people in villages in South America, because he he specifically was in Seventh Group, which is a Spanish-speaking group. They were in South America. Mom would take us to church and bribe us with a little buffet to go eat, you know. And I thought it was boring as a kid. I'd go to sleep on her lap. Once in a while, I'd go to the youth thing and remember a story about a guy on a boat with all these animals and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, well, this is kind of cool. But that was my upbringing. I didn't take religious religion very seriously, even though subconsciously, I'm sure— Without me consciously
1: remembering, I was being indoctrinated through those things in my mom. And was there not like some sort of uh, conflict of interest between your mom and your dad being different denominations of, of Christianity in different levels and things? Actually, not so much. I mean, there might
0: have been a debate throughout the history of their marriage where it was like, no, we're going to this church. But dad was Catholic by label. He wasn't a devout Catholic. He was the kind of guy when we went to Cooperstown, New York where my family, my my dad's parents are from. The Baseball Hall of Fame is out there. And we'd go down there to mass, you know, like 10 o'clock, midnight, we'd go to mass, Christmas Eve, and that was it, you know. Dad never really went to church, but maybe twice and it was due to weddings. So he was not, he was just like on paper a Catholic. But if you try to jab at the Pope or the Catholic Church, he kind of had this little like reaction. Hey, hey, hey! Now today, I don't know if it's still that indoctrination there, but he doesn't seem to be
1: quite as Catholic. If that makes sense. Did they have um, like accents? Because you went into an accent. Like so, to me, I don't. I'm not that familiar with a lot of American accents. To me, you've got like this normal American. I guess there isn't a normal American accent. But you've got American accent, and it's just what it sounds like. I wouldn't be able to say where you're from. Maybe other people are listening who are from America. They're going, what are you talking about? He's obviously from this particular place. But did your parents have those kinds of accents?
0: 100%. Um, my mom, she, hey, y'all. Look, oh. we're going to cook us some food over here now. She's got the southern Florida wow. uh, accent. Now, my dad is, hey, so, hey. Nah, look, this is what we're gonna, now over time that changed. Dad got indoctrinated <laughs> to the southern way of life and country music, but he still has that northern uh, tone. And so even while I was in North Carolina, which is kind of between New York and Florida where mom and dad were born, or at least where they were raised, and yes they were born there, I was being like, told by people, you don't sound like you're from here. Like, you
1: sound kind of northern, like, you kind of don't have an accent the way that we do i, I love all those like, the southern accent i love that i do declare i'm always sort of doing that forrest gump kind of <laughs> you know obviously forrest gump is not a true representative you know representative of people from the south right but i do love those accents very exotic for for someone like me I, I i grew up with a bit of that feeling of like not knowing you know i always remember um asking my dad who grew up a little bit more working class than i was and i was like dad are we are we posh which is a you know british word for you know and he was like well you are <laughs> And I remember, oh, that's weird. I'm a different (laughs) thing to what to what he was. So I I obviously have a bit of you know posher intonations and and ways of speaking and all that kind of thing. Um, Your your childhood was it? It wasn't, from what I gather, always that easy. Particularly um, with with your father. Is that right?
0: Well, Dad, um, being the kind of guru, hardcore, alpha, testosterone filled badass, he um, he was also an alcoholic. He didn't discover that till much later. Usually people who are addicted to alcohol who've never been told, hey, you're an alcoholic, don't figure that out till much later. And so it was a roller coaster emotionally for me and my brother and my sisters early on. But when they were gone, that me and my brother stayed with... See, I have two sisters that are not like from my dad. Uh, They're from my mom, but they're not from my dad. They're half-sisters, and... They're my sisters. I don't care what anyone says. Point is, um, me and Kurt, we had to watch dad go through a life's roller coaster where he would do things, say things alcohol-wise, physical or verbal abuse in some way. Now, not not like when I say physical, it wasn't like a 24-7, but it would happen from time to time. The violence would be there. And then the next morning or the next day or the next afternoon or even the next week, depending on if he was on a binge, we'd have to hear him sincerely, and it was real, apologize. And to watch the man who said the things he said and did the things he did, turn around just seven days later, or the next day, really showing that he did not mean to do those things. Really, not only did the trauma in my youth come from some of this, but it taught us patterns that we may still even carry some today that we don't know how to. So it's almost like, how do you explain that? I mean, yeah, it was tough, it was tough.
1: In- inconsistencies are supposed to be what what's really hard for children growing up, just never knowing where you stand. When did you do, you, do you remember getting to a point where you realized that your dad had those issues?
0: I didn't, when you're like born into an environment and you don't really, you know it's not right, You you know it hurts and you wish it stopped, But it wasn't until I got a little older and we started discovering that people were making these like, hey, you are an alcoholic. It's when they discover that you are an alcoholic and like you have a problem. You need to stop drinking. And when mom would say this and others would try to, you know, get him to do it and he didn't do it, we started going, why? Why choose the alcohol over us? I mean, there were times we had to leave, you know, the house for weeks at a time and go stay with my mom's friends, and uh, it was it was you know it was tough, but we would block it out and just keep going. Oh, it's just dad. It's just dad. You make excuses for your own dad to protect him, like an abused woman protects her husband or uh, anything like that. And when mom would get so bad that mom would have to call the cops, um, when the cops would show up because she just wanted to scare him, she would then defend him and be like no we had a small argument we're fine and you know because she's also a victim of the situation and my dad was a victim of alcoholism so there's like everybody's a victim and then you know it's pretty tough it's pretty tough to describe if nobody's been in that
1: kind of environment their whole life I, I suppose it reminds me of that really complicated role of uh, in, in cults that dynamic in cults where it's between perpetrator and victim. Because in a sense, you know, especially I mean, some of the people you and I have both interviewed in the past from Scientology, for example, they've come out and they're talking with us, and we're having these conversations. God, isn't it crazy? The horrible things they do, and sometimes beneath the surface, part of me is thinking, but you were doing it, <laughs> you know, but but you were a victim. I actually said that.
0: I actually told that to Mike Render. I said, Mike, you know, this is a tough one, but I, I want you to directly answer if you can. Were you this monster that your family, your children right now that are being interviewed in the Scientology cult, are saying you were a monster, you were you were this horrible, blah, 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 blah. Were you those things? He said, Yes, I was. I was a monster. This cult really did it was everything to me and I would have done anything to protect it. And so, yes, I wasn't the father that I should have been. And that honesty, like to me, it's a
1: lot. That goes a long ways. That goes a long ways. Well, there's a part in Mike's book, and I don't don't want to divert too much from your story, of course, but in his book where he gets told that his child died. And because he's so indoctrinated in Scientology at that point, he was a little bit shell-shocked, but then sort of brushes over it, and it's just like, oh well, what's what am I doing tomorrow? And well, that that was the impression I got anyway. And it's just that feeling because the true believers in Scientology don't really value human life that much anyway. It's about the thetans and the things. But anyway, that's the if you if we take that victim and perpetrator mentality or that dynamic too far, you can't blame anyone for anything. You know, anybody who's uh, on trial now for murder or whatever it might be, you go, well, they had a difficult upbringing, I suppose. Where where do you stand now when you see when you look back at your father?
0: Well, he owns up to it, so he is responsible for his own actions and what he has done. Um, he's a victim, I'm sure, of an environment and the kind of things he was part of. So there, you gotta own up to something. Just like my story is gonna unravel, and you're gonna hear and go, hmm, wow. And in fact, um, I'm giving you kind of a uh, Easter egg when I had a. a Ph.D., a doctor who's like a psychiatrist, psychologist, I don't know, I can't remember, but it's not the not the medical side, not the kind they give you medicine, they help you with the behavioral. And he, he said, how do you know you forgave him? How do you know that you forgave him? He wanted to put me on the spot. And uh, my answer was, because I became him. I became him. And once you know because you became him, and you know that he didn't mean to do these things, and he wishes he could have changed them. You can't hold it against him, cause you're him.
1: And you—it's it's really, really deep. So that's really deep. Oh my God. Because even that makes me think about there are sometimes times where my brain goes the other way. There are things I've told my brother this, you know, when I was a kid, all brothers sort of hate each other. And there were things I sort of really didn't like about him. And, and I was like, I would be like, oh, whenever he did certain things. And it took years for me to realize the reason I hated the, those particular things he did was because they reminded me of me. And they were like, it was me in him. So in that sense, it was like, because I was him, that was what I hated. <laughs> and then maybe I hated myself. God, we're having like a, like a, almost like a, 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 a Dope. What would you call it? A Weed discussion. Yeah, or like, whatever, dude. What in the world, bro? <laughs> <laughs> Is my blue the same as your blue? Oh, we all see different. No, but okay. But, <laughs> going back to, okay, I guess, a serious, serious topic here. I mean, look, what, how how you talk about call, there was calling the police. How bad did things get? Did they get? Was it physically violent?
0: Sometimes. Um, my dad wanted to. He got very aggressive when he got drunk and he wanted to teach us what he learned and he'd like really manhandle me and my brother sometimes. And I think he dislocated my brother's wrist one time or almost did. It was, I think he may have. I mean, Kurt was screaming and he did what's called a Kodagash, which is like, if I put my hands on you, you can put your arms over and grab and lock my hand and then twist and use the pressure on my hand to take my body to the ground and so he did it, but if you do it fast enough, you're going to rip the 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 joint or tendon. You're going to tear this, and you're going to cause the person to force themselves to the ground. What well, Dad would be like? This is what you do, and he'd get drunk and they put your hands on you, right? And when you do that, you put the elbow over and you snap the wrist to the ground. And I mean, you're like, and you, these we're like eight or nine years old, and Dad's like man, like a we're grown men manhandling us and stuff. So. He would get over aggressive and may not mean to. There were times when things would get overheated in argument to the point where dishes would fly or my mom and him would put their hands on each other. And it was from time to time. It was not, that was not as common as verbal abuse. Every time, every single time, there was verbal abuse involved, every single time. And to me, looking back, the violent parts were scary. The damage that comes from it that may be even more traumatic, but it's like the enduring of hearing someone call you something all the time, over and over. For me and my brothers, you fets, you this, you that. I'm talking like I'm just using words. I'm just telling you point blank what was being said throughout our lives, you know. Um, and then we always heard if you become if you smoke pot, you're a loser, right? So pot is for losers. Um, these kind of military, you're not allowed to smoke in the military. You can drink, alcohol's definitely like encouraged, but um, you're a loser if you smoke pot, and that'll show up in my story as well. But there's a lot of stuff, man, that we heard our whole lives, and we wanted to rise above that. And I said in my head, I never, my dad was always my hero and still is to this day. It's a strange relationship in my brain. He is my hero. But I never wanted to be like him. And I did not join the military because I didn't want to be like him. And I could have. I could have gone into Special Forces. I could have gone all the way. I had the physique. I was running triathlons. I was a very athletic guy. But I did not want to become like my father.
1: That image that you paint of uh, the... Your, your dad doing sort of training moves on you, but it getting too out of hand. That I mean, that's a really scary thing. And I'm sure a lot of people have at some point, we've all experienced that person who's showing you a trick or showing you a, a way to fight or something. And you're going, hang on, I, I didn't ask for this. That's terrifying for a young child and, and the, the the names, as you say, being called those things. What, what did that do to you? Um,
0: I think it lowered self-esteem in some sense. Um, and it may have it may have f- caused me to work even harder to be better to be to be even m- more tough to be to put on more of a facade right like i'm not these things so you overcompensate and you go extra you go the extra mile working out you go the extra mile athletically speaking you go the extra mile to prove you're not what he keeps saying that you are cuz you know he's saying it as a pejorative
1: That may be what it did. And is that part of how one becomes their father?
0: I imagine it plays as part of the Legos in building the tower of becoming like the person you don't want to become.
1: Hey, it's Andrew. Alison schrager if you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people join them every wednesday on what could go right available wherever you get your podcasts what is the, the the next part of your your story you alluded to things going a bit awry well years go by
0: and this trauma is there there's this there's always this cycle that we live in in this roller coaster up down up down up down emotionally, psychologically, relocating physically, so we're not always in the same spot and place because dad's alcoholism. And I need to make one brief comment before I move forward because it sounds like I'm demonizing father here. Um it sounded funny how I said that. Demonizing my dad. Um he when he's sober, when you meet him, when you talk with him. I'll give you a little something to encourage and give a little positive here. My grandfather, who my dad is like in many ways when he's sober, he they have a whole field named after him in Cooperstown, New York. This guy was a superintendent of the district. I mean, he, his name is a legend up there. He's dead now. But when he was at his funeral, some random guy in 1970 or 80, somewhere around there, this guy randomly, nobody knew who he was, came up and said, I met Paul Lambert at the mail, the mail station where you go to pick up your mail and he says, he had it. And he says, I don't know what it is, but he had it. And when he spoke, and when you talked to him, when you met him, he glowed. There was something about the guy, something about him. My dad has it. Even to this day, he has it. He walks in a room, and you're like, dude, this guy's freaking cool. Like, this guy's really a great person. That's the difficulty. Because he's such a good, great, amazing person. And it's like overcompensation in the opposite direction with alcohol hit. So that is what made it even more torturous on how do we, like, how, I don't understand. So years go by. I'm a kid in high school. Or actually, let's back up to my religious bring-up because this plays a part. Mom's taking us to church, not that serious. But I'm in sixth grade at a private school because where I'm at, there's some schools that really have a lot of bad things that go on in them. There's a lot of violence and stuff. So mom wanted me to go into a private school. And I found Jesus. I'll cut to the chase, right? I'm at this sermon and this person says, if you told a lie, if you've told one lie, you had to lie about that lie. And so this chain, and he had rubber bands on this like projector showing how the chain of lies connect to each other. And he said, if you've lied about that lie, well, that lie, and he says, but don't worry, he sold me the message of those sins, those, those wrongdoings that you did, they were paid for by Jesus on the cross. And somehow it connected with everything my upbringing, I suspect hearing Jesus and knowing a little bit of the story, I went down to the altar that day. And I I asked Jesus into my heart. And I felt in my stomach this warm, comforting experience like I was home. Like I finally found what I was looking for. Because they told me about a father They told me about a father that will never let you down. He'll never forsake you. He will always be there to protect you. He's perfect. And I said, I need that father. I need that connection. And I got that connection. So I started to communicate and pray and having this kind of relationship with Jesus in my life. We moved to Puerto Rico. The alcoholism gets worse and worse. Like it's just going down deeper and deeper. And I still had that little voice in my head where I would communicate, but mostly girls come on the scene. I lost my virginity. We're playing Truth or Dare. I drank my first couple shots of uh, tequila and would sneak the beer off. Dad would hand me, you know, condoms and Playboy magazines and say, Son, you want to live forever? Do this. Always wear a condom. Never swim alone. Never give a dog a chicken bone. Always go to combat with a plan. Never use your tongue to stop a fan. <laughs> You'll live forever if you do that. What does h- half of that mean? It's a it's a, joke. It's like a saying, like a slogan, like a, it's just something that dad would say and we would laugh and be like, all right, all right. And I'd like broke most of those rules, you know, like didn't wear a condom. I went swimming alone. Yeah, I'd given a dog a chicken bone, you know? Things like that, you know? <laughs> So we would go and, and sneak his beer and get drunk and girls and stuff. And I come back to North Carolina. I got my heart broke. The girlfriend I was with cheated on me. So then I come back. I'm going to sleep with all these girls. I told her when I get back. When I got back, I got super religious. I got back into Jesus to the point where I had nothing to do with girls. For two years in high school, I'm carrying my King James Bible in, in high school. And everyone's like, why are you reading that? A public high school, like you're reading it at your at your di- like you're not even like socially normal. You're you're over here reading your Bible and like really religious, and wanting to talk about Jesus in every conversation. It's all you want to do. You're thinking about the afterlife. You're thinking about the world ending. You're thinking I'm having dreams about Jesus coming back. I'm not going to go into all of those details. People could find that stuff on my on my channel because it I go in throughout my show of so much detail. Point is. I'm feeling a little bit left out after a while. Like I'm missing stuff. Like there's life, kids are enjoying life. Why am I not? And I go through this phase of Jesus, and then I'd go and be the party guy that like everyone wanted to come to my bonfires. Everyone wanted to come and hang out and do truth or dare and so now girls are back on the scene and I'm drinking, you know, and we're having fun. I'm not of age. I'm underage. I'm not supposed to drink. One night I smoked a little pot at a bonfire. My brother and Friends that I grew up with were crying. Dude, I can't believe you did it, man. You you were never supposed to do this stuff, but I felt like I had found it once again. I found it. I'm lo- this is what I've been looking for. Screw what dad said, pot is for losers. Are you kidding me? He just never tried it, that's why. So I'm smoking pot, and I loved marijuana. I'm talking about to the point where I'd skip school to go and smoke, and I come out, and I'm like falling asleep in class because I was high as a kite. And the cycle, the cycle keeps going. I'm going through a no strings attached, having fun with girls, and then I try to do it on this one girl who still lives in this house for some reason. I don't know, you know, she's still here with me. I tried to just, you know, let's just do the do, right? She wouldn't let me. She wouldn't let me go that far. And I'm telling you, man, I pulled out every card trick in the book and usually girls finally give give in or like, yeah, let's do this, I'm down she wouldn't go that far she'd kiss but she wouldn't go
1: and i fell in love with her still hasn't
0: (laughs) yeah right still
1: hasn't all these years later
0: (laughs) (laughs) still i'm trying to work those cards um but i fell in love with her along the way and i got her pregnant i'm I'm literally there's so much in life right i'm just giving you this gist got her pregnant and stuff gets kind of serious back to jesus now I'm serious about Jesus again. I got to step it up. I'm failing in high school. In the latter uh, the latter uh, part of my 12th grade, I go to the principal. I drop out because I screwed up so bad. I would have had the worst grades. that would have been stuck on my record. Dropped out. I mean, I slept sometimes in the parking lot overnight because of the alcoholism that happened at home. And one time they'd take me into the counselor's office at school when I told them this. And it, it, almost, it got kind of scary, like I thought they were maybe going to try and go after my dad or something like that, because here I am sleeping in the in the parking lot at the public high school in a car. Um, but I went back, I'm all about Jesus, and my King James only Bible, uh, it was a King James only, that's the word of God, and I'm really into it, and I actually pass really, really good. So I get through high school. And I'm all about Jesus, and next thing you know, I'm all about smoking and partying and doing that kind of stuff. Then I'm all about Jesus, and then I'm all into this, and then eventually pills come into the scene where I'm on opiates. I'm like kinda jumping here, but I'm like really giving you the picture of my life. It's like I I was never into one thing only. I always would move into the next thing. So I'll allow you to feel free to jump in and and (laughs) ask whatever, you know?
1: Sure, sure, I mean, wow, yeah, and as you say, you you do have to fast forward or we'll be here for for, for five hours, I suppose, such such as the richness uh and ups and downs of of your life um when you were on the marijuana were you were you concerned that your dad would sort of smell it on you or something?
0: he would catch us from time to time, but he couldn't control what we did, of course, I didn't want him to know, we hid it, we tried, we tried to hide it, and I'm sure he he knew, but dad wasn't like micromanaging
1: what we did. What was your, what was harder? What was, what was worse being devoutly religious or being in that sort of, I suppose, before the opiate stage with being on the sort of drugs and that kind of, uh, period of your periods of your life
0: that it depends on what we mean when we say what's worse, because if you say what was worse physically, what was more unhealthy, what was, possibly more dangerous in terms of like my life physically it was obviously the lifestyle without jesus what was worse in terms of socially and the way that i communicated and harassed i would use the term people about jesus it was definitely on jesus because i took the whole you need to you need to get the gospel out there and convert the world. Like This message is so important, people will go to hell. And how the cognitive dissonance works from going from living the lifestyle I was lifting, living to Jesus and turning off that switch. I've even had that doctor friend that I told you about who's trying to ask me these questions. He goes, I don't understand how you went, I'm living this life here, and then I could go and be all Jesus and like, how you did that I don't know how your brain was switching it on and
1: off but I was all in on Jesus he's not watched like the Sopranos then or the Godfather (laughs) or one of those right because they do that they go from one to the other they and and they they need both of those extremes don't they was that part of it was it clearing your conscious uh, conscience after all the, the bad behavior then going to the piousness it was hard to pin down because I felt like yeah there was sometimes I was
0: doing wrong but I would even still in my drug phase. Sometimes the conversation would come up, and I would talk about it like I need to get back. I need to get back to to what I know is right. And everyone would get all like teary eyed that were around me, and they'd be like, "Dude, don't 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 do that to us right now, man. We're getting guilt tripped." In fact, one time we were rolling on ecstasy, and I had been reading that that week while in that other phase, been reading my Bible, trying to kind of fight the lifestyle to get back to Jesus and I was reading about Moses going in to get the 10 commandments and stuff and it, and it was a really it's a fun story to read why well, bring it up while we're rolling on ecstasy like an extremely intense role and we're in my mom's jacuzzi at the house and I start bringing up Moses and it's peaking like we're tripping now and they're like bro you can't talk about that and then i had the craziest experience where i was hallucinating at that moment we started seeing demons and all this stuff like it was it was nuts it was really nuts i started hearing laughs and stuff and i'm going we're tripping out i mean cuz we hallucinated on this before as well we did did these and i thought i was inside of a house but i wasn't i was outside and like it really changes a lot you can't understand where you're at sometimes or what's going on but um I've had a fair share of experiences.
1: I suppose, I suppose, <laughs> what the drug phase and the religious phase have in common is they're both sort of uh, changing your reality and taking you outside of reality, right?
0: One hundred percent, one hundred percent. And that journey kept going, and I and finally, when I found pills, opiates, that is when I I found it. That warm bosom filling I felt in that church when I asked Jesus into my heart, that's what I felt when I did opiates.
1: What are opiates and and opioids? What, What are they?
0: So they come from a poppy plant, and so they're a natural resource. They're totally natural, usually used for pain relief, because we have opiate receptors in our brains. I mean, just like our bodies, most people don't know, produce THC the same chemical that we find within marijuana, our bodies produce. It just doesn't produce it at extreme amounts, like that's why people ingest, or uh, does our bodies produce vitamin C or vitamin D? Yes, but people drink milk or drink orange juice to enhance, and it's all natural resources, but you can really hijack those um, natural parts of our bodies by ingesting things that uh, oftentimes can help us to block out pain or help us to get over sicknesses. I, I took vitamin C this morning and a multivitamin, but I, I started to pop these pills and it helped me escape. I had no pain. It all started really though, when I had a, um, a painkiller from my mother-in-law, my wife's mom. And at the time I think we were just boyfriend and girlfriend, but she was pregnant with my first son. And I had a headache and she was addicted to him. And she's like, here, I've got a Percocet you could take because it has Tylenol on it. I had the worst headache. I took it and I was on cloud nine. I was like, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for. Holy smokes, where did you get this? Um, can you help me out? I need another one. My head hurts, you know? Um, so you want more of it. And I'm an addictive personality because my dad was an addictive personality. My mom's even an addictive personality. They're very go, go, go almost OCD, I would say, but definitely um, addictive. Years, Jesus, opioids. G- I I even tried to go back to pot to try and get off the opioids. I, I tried to get back onto marijuana because it was such a less harmful thing than what I was doing to my body. And I would look like a skinny rail. And then I'd get back on Jesus. And then I'd get in the gym. And then I tried steroids, which ended up finally getting me gynecomastia because I had no clue what I was doing, which is pretty much I have solid – I'd have to have it cut out. Like I tried steroids and going to the gym to do healthy stuff because I'm athletic too. And so gynecomastia is like a hard tissue that develops behind the the nipple. And it makes you look like you have breast in a way, like minor development of breast.
1: Usually people – That must have been scary.
0: It's not that it's scary. It's kind of like if you look in the mirror and you used to have a six pack and then you start having a pudge and you're like, I don't want, I don't want to wear my shirt off. You know, now I'm like, people are going to look at him and go, look, he has
1: boobs. I would have, yeah, I would have assumed, I'd assume it was like a tumor or something. You know, I'd be worried about something (laughs) like that. But so, so what does it feel like to be on these opiates or opioids? You you just, because I grew up around people, you know, people did ecstasy and and all these things, but. I never heard of anyone on the opi- opioids. But is this like, are they just painkillers, but you're taking lots of them?
0: Yes. The the best way I ever remember it being described was when I was like, getting off of heroin. We're skipping ahead here because heroin and fentanyl was where I ended up. It was started with Vicodins and Percocets and years later, a decade later, here I am injecting, shooting up In my veins. And I've always been terrified of needles and blood. Like, even when I went to go do testosterone and have it injected, I had to have others do it. I'd hold my breath, get it over with, get it over with to try it. I mean, like, I'm scared of needles, but it got so bad. My addiction was so bad that it was like I'm sticking needles in my own arm now to put the stuff in. And so, the way that someone described it is I found it in a newspaper as soon as I was getting off of the last time I ever used. It was on the front page of the Fayetteville Observer. There's an arm, a tourniquet, and a needle. And the guy inside, who's being interviewed at one of the local recovery places said, it's like, and you have to imagine this, God comes down, wraps this warm blanket around you, and hugs you, and says, everything is gonna be okay. You have nothing to worry about. And I felt that was the truth you are okay, everything is okay. That's the feeling you get. You can just lay there and don't worry about a thing. That's how it makes you feel. And it literally makes you escape, you feel love. It gives you a feeling of love. In fact, I interviewed a brain scientist who uh, gets into consciousness and wrote a book about this, but he pretty much told me, Derek, you're being addicted to opioids? Is actually a showing a sign of you may have been traumatized and didn't get the kind of love you wanted growing up so you're seeking love through the drug I was looking for love in Jesus you know
1: how do you ever remove that blanket then or that warm hug how do you ever get off of that
0: oh that's part of the journey brother that's part of the story that's part of it and it's gonna sound so esoteric it's gonna sound so funny Andrew, I had to find myself. I had to find me. I went through the journey of the pits, the valleys of life, dark and lonely, miserable, trying to find, and when that high went away and that hug was, that warmth of that hug dissipated and I needed the next fix, I tried to go get the next fix. To when I'm on the high ends of the mountain where I'm with Jesus and Moses on the mountain of God, metaphorically speaking, and I'm feeling the warmth and the love and I'm still trying to tap into that thing and even that didn't quite get i went through these through this journey and finally when i got to the end of the mountain it was like i'm dying on heroin i'm glad it happened this way i'm dying for heroin, and i'm desperate and i'm like whatever i believe in whatever i'm doing isn't working i keep doing this I'm going to die. Derek, you're going to die. You're insane. I really believed I was insane. I thought, why can I keep doing this to myself? I must be insane. Something's wrong with me. And then I realized I have a real problem physiologically. It's not a spiritual. It's not a demon. It's not a freaking ghost or a God or this. There's something medically wrong with me and I need to fix it. I need to fix it or I'm dead. And that fear catapulted me to be absolutely slave-like toward trying to get into a 12-step program and doing the right thing. And there were certain principles that they told me, behaviors that you should practice as a human. Like when you do something wrong, which causes a trigger of emotion, or you're mean, or you're angry, go and try immediately, as quick as you can, make that right. Go tell that person, I'm sorry. I can't live life hating you. I can't live life feeling this way. I'm giving you details of what I had to do. And when I started to do that, it allowed me to not have to live with that stress because I was able to get it off of my shoulders because I don't know how to live life with stress and pain and and not feeling love and things like that. So I have to do that. Even today, I don't debate people with my knowledge because first, my ego, and number two, I don't need that, that tension. I don't even want it. You want to learn, watch my videos. You want to see me debate, good luck. I'm not doing it. I'm just not there yet. I don't think I want to. All right, I'm saying all that. Let me get to the point, though. At the end, during this journey, I'm listening to parables, and one of these parables, this guy says, God goes to make man. My understanding of God has gotten bigger. I got excommunicated from the Presbyterian church because while I was on the Jesus phase, I was learning things theologically that caused me to be a black sheep. And the reason is, and I was being honest, Jesus said certain things. And these people in this church are ignoring Jesus. Jesus said it, why are you guys not listening to it? Oh, I know, you have a tradition. But they wouldn't listen, so they saw me as a heretic. So I get excommunicated again, feeling not love from this community. And I end up going and I have to find it for myself. Because I'm gonna follow Jesus and not man. This is my mentality. I had to paint that into this picture because as I'm getting clean off heroin and I'm wondering what God is, I start thinking God is bigger. And the parable goes like this. It's not in any holy book. God goes to make man. And he says, I'm gonna make man ambitious, driven, motivated, a conqueror, a mighty thinker, brilliant, like, like me. And then Satan overhears and he goes, I gotta hide God from man. Where can I hide God that man will never find him? I know what I'll do. I'll hide God in the mountains, under all the dirt, under all the rocks. They'll never find him. And he thinks about it long and hard and goes, man will be ambitious, driven, motivated, creative, intelligent. I can't put him there. He'll remove the rock, remove the dirt, discover God. I know what I'll do. I'll hide him beneath the oceans, under the sand. He'll never discover him there, right? intelligent, motivated, driven. He'll find an apparatus that'll get him beneath the water, sweep away the sand, and he'll discover God. I can't hide him there. So he thinks long and hard about where. And last of all, he says, I got it. It was right there under my nose the whole time. I will hide God inside of every human. That ever comes to be they'll always journey the world searching and seeking and looking and never for once just look in themselves and say it's you and when i heard it it clicked especially when i started learning science because i had a physical problem i needed to understand my brain it wasn't the demons it wasn't satan it wasn't jesus it was something physical it was more natural And this journeyed me towards a naturalistic outlook on life, trying to understand the nature in the world we live in, not through superstitions. And I discovered myself, the voice that talking to Jesus was me the whole time. The two footprints in the sand, when you were weak, I carried you. It was me and my family and the loved ones who cared about me, who carried me, not Jesus. So this is what happened to me. I, did, I fell in love with myself, even with my flaws. And once you fall in love with yourself, who can take that away?
1: You're as content as you can be. I suppose some people, I guess, I guess we have to tailor advice for different people, don't we? Because some people don't need to love themselves more. Some, you know, I, I can certainly think of some people who are already in love with themselves in certain, in certain ways. Definitely introspection. Though that's, I mean, that's 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 a given, isn't it? And I think we all we all need that a little bit, don't we? As you as you yeah. progress beyond adolescence, we find that it's so tough as a sort of teenager for so many of us, regardless of upbringing. And if you've had a hard upbringing, it's even worse, of course. And you start to get to know yourself, and that seem that does seem to be a really big uh, moment in in sort of being happy and content.
0: Well, I, I if I were to say, maybe my interpretation of loving oneself isn't this infatuation, egomaniac, or someone who's like overly obsessed with himself. It's literally, I live in this body, I, ha- I cannot help I have a nature, sexual urge. I cannot help that I have natural inclinations. I can't help that I have to defecate, urinate, and use the bathroom. I can't help that I am a human and that I have flaws. I can't help that those are just going to be part of what I am, and that's okay. See, as a Christian, you're to hate the flesh, at least if you're being consistent with what Paul teaches and what the Bible teaches. This world is bad. The God of this world is wicked, and Jesus will destroy him one day. This flesh is corruptible, horrible flesh, and you need to hate your life now so that you don't lose it. But if you love this life now, then you will lose your life in the hereafter. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says, in that phrase. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. That ideology had to go. It was really self-destructive. And that's what I meant by loving oneself. It's when you come to love yourself the way I understand that I love myself is also going to make me understand that I need to think about others and what they are going through and how can I help them. So there's more to it than just, oh, you just need to love yourself. I love myself so much that I'm not doing anything for anyone else, I love myself. To love myself is to help my fellow man, to help other people, which is part of those principles I learned. So I have a philosophy today, even though I'm an atheist. But anyway, we're getting to the end there on that.
1: <laughs> There's so much. Yeah, well, going back just to the sort of the, the difficult, the, the the heroin days, when you think back to those days now, what kind of effect was it having on your loved ones and, and how... How did that feel at the time as well? I hid it from my wife that I was doing hair.
0: She thought I was just doing um, painkillers and I was hiding the needles in the house and she found them and she's like, what is this? And I was like, Oh, it's gotta be my brother. Cause my brother was struggling or it was friends that came over. And then finally she saw track marks on my arms, my veins. So for those who don't know, track marks are the needle marks that go on your veins. And, um, she would see me at night, we'd lay in the bed every night to watch TV or whatever and I'd be nodding and I and she'd be like couldn't hear me breathe for a while and she'd tap me and and she and she'd cry to bed every night, literally cry thinking I lost my husband and he's gonna die. And I remember a moment when I was fiending. I was stuck. I don't know how to put it into words. And me and my brother went and I begged the dealer for a 20 front and I said, please man, I'll pay you later. I gotta go steal something to find the money so I can get you this money, I need it, I'm dying. And I remember me and my brother in the backseat of the car and I put the hair in the spoon and I spilled some of it. And I was so mad because that was supposed to go in my veins. And then once I did it and I looked down after I'd done a Suboxone, so it already blocked out most of the feeling I get from the heroin. I looked in the spoon and I could see my face reflection off of it. And I was just like, this has got to end, bro. And I looked over at him and he starts crying. And we're just, we're just, I don't know, man. We're looking at ourselves in the spoon. And I was like, you have to beat this. There's something my dad did teach me growing up. Because he's so hardcore. And he's like, never. Am I allowed to cuss? Yeah. Well, bleep it out if you want. But he's like, yeah, never effing. Give up, son. Never. Never give up. And I remember getting jumped in Myrtle Beach by 15 college dudes while I was going unconscious and they were hitting me with a bat on my back and slamming their fist in the back of my head and I'm going unconscious, bro. I've never experienced that level of getting my ass whooped to try and protect a friend of mine because everybody's drunk and acting a fool. It's you know, it's it's uh, spring break and I could hear my dad's voice in the weakest part going, don't give up. Like, don't ever give up. Like, I could hear it. And I got up, bro, I survived. That's all I could say. I called my dad the next morning. I wasn't embarrassed that I was a pothead at the time. I wasn't embarrassed that I almost died. I said, Dad, I heard you last night. I could hear you in my head. And you helped me get through. And that enforcement as a youth told me, fight. Don't give up. What did he say? He just said, son, you need to take better care of yourself. You need to stop. You know, you try to, like, warn me, try to help me. This is before the opiate phase. I was a wrestler in high school, bro. I had I had some, like, skills, you know, like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man, what's up? But I didn't realize the whole crowd. We had people, they were recruiting people off the street in the middle of that fight. So we were getting people that were coming in on their side. We didn't have that. They are asking people to help us beat our ass. Like, it was... I've never gone through anything like this. And I mean, I'm like, one of my friends went in and grabbed a knife and he comes, out, who do I need to stab? I mean, it's it's getting crazy. And I'm going, it's over! Once I almost got knocked out and was out for good. Um, but I'm hearing that voice in the backseat of that car after seeing my reflection in the spoon. And I knew that the end of it all needed to happen soon. I was trying to build that in myself that you need to stop soon. But I didn't know how. And how I got clean off Man, that was nuts. I made up a lie. I mean, I made up a lie that the dope dealer had my ID, he knew where we lived, and I got a front for 140 bucks worth of dope. And then he was gonna shoot my house up with my family in it. I called my mom and told her this lie to convince her to give me the money so I could get high. And she wouldn't buy it, but I didn't stop for hours, so she started to be convinced because of repetition. And finally she goes, If I buy this for you, you have to go to Elise, this lady who was in recovery, and she let me stay at her house. You need to go there, out of the city, away, give me the keys to your truck so you can't get transportation, and you need to get your life together and get clean. And I was like, oh sure, yeah, absolutely, you say anything. And I'm not thinking I'm actually going to get clean, dude. I'm going to get clean. No, I ended up going after I got high and I went to her house and I'm thinking the whole time, give it a day or two, get them off my back, make them think everything's better and I can come back to one, I can come back to that feeling that I've been wanting. That It didn't go that way. And it, a lot of little things play into that of what led me down there. But while I was at her house, I started waking up, like kind of like took the red pill and was like, yo, I'm in the matrix. And I started waking up. I was like, something's got to change. And one moment at a time I had to get through each moment forget time and tomorrow and the rest of your life that tries to come into your head that doesn't exist that doesn't exist yet there's another parable so there's a wise man named Andrew journeying through the wilderness pondering his past, present and future and a lion pops out from behind a cactus and begins to chase Andrew so Andrew begins to run and he sees every time he turns back the lion's closer to getting him and he's running, and he looks back, and it almost has his ankle. And the next thing you know, he turns back, and it's got his ankle, and he falls over the edge of a cliff. And as he's falling, he's grabbing to try and hold on to something so he doesn't die. And he grabs this root hanging out of the side of the cliff, and he looks up, and there's that lion hanging over the edge, ready to devour Andrew. So as he's sitting there, he looks down, and there's another lion at the bottom looking up, ready to devour him. And while he's there, he feels sharp pain in his hands. He notices that there are thorns on this root, jabbing his flesh and blood's dripping down his arms. And on the tip of this root, there's a blackberry. For some reason, Andrew decides and eats the blackberry. And it's the best blackberry that Andrew ever ate. The end. People go, what the heck is the point of that one? Well, he's pondering his past, present, and future. And the lion that chased him was his past. And the lion at the bottom is his future. And if you think about the lion at to the top at the bottom, you're going to die. And even though the moment right now hurts and it sucks, there's always a blackberry. Look for the blackberry in the moment and eat that blackberry. Find it. It's there. Don't dwell on the lions.
1: And I used your name, of course, to give you, you know,
0: Make you make you feel special.
1: You, you should work for BlackBerry, man. I th- I suppose what the problem I'm very I find it very hard to stay in the moment. And of course, I think I think it is brilliant. It's very Buddhist sort of thing as well, isn't it? Be in the moment. It's why people meditate and un- enjoy the moment. I guess all I'm thinking there is like, are there places? Maybe there are, but where there are lions and cacti, where a lion can come out from a cactus, is that? are they, is that right i don't know i made i made it up okay <laughs> <laughs> actually i heard this from someone yeah see there's my problem see see everyone else is busy either dying from the lions or eating blackberries but i'm sitting there going yeah but this this, this seems incongruous yeah there's cacti <laughs> didn't it start with the woods was i not walking i was imagining myself walking in the woods and now there's cacti and now there's a lion meanwhile i've just been eaten so I need to stop thinking about what might be in Congress and eat the blackberry. And that will extend my life a few seconds. <laughs> but then you still have to deal with the. I do love the parables, though. I just, I just wonder what I would do next after eating the blackberry. You're, you're screwed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a parable. It, it ends like that on purpose. So it's, it's one of those like, <laughs> yeah. I, well, what happens as humans? We want to know what happens. Uh, but there's a lesson.
1: It's more just a lesson, of course jump down and try and land feet first on the lion's head. And that's your only chance. And if you miss, you're done for. Um, you became an atheist soon after what how did that happen so what
0: there's this transition that took place for me it's almost like mourning a death of a friend but then the reason why it wasn't so traumatic at the end of the day is the friend was really me the whole time you start to realize like you're talking to yourself all those times i prayed all those times that i was speaking to god Even Christians can't understand, how could you have been in a relationship with Jesus because they believe it's real? How could you have been in a relationship with Jesus, been doing that, had this real relationship, you think, and then walk away from your friend like that? I never walked away. I found out what it really was. That's the complexity of this situation, is finding out that it was actually me, not Jesus. It was my family. It was my friends. It was me. It was the environment. It was the people around me. It's like that person who's in there who gets their cancer cut out in the hospital bed and they go, thank God. How about thank modern science, thank this doctor, thank your child or whoever the loved one is for surviving it. Like, Thank them because we know we have, like you talk about, how's this lion get behind the cactus? You're thinking logically, right? I'm using an analogy here, but the point is they're kind of like wishing on the universe or thanking the universe at this point, but really I found that it was us the whole time. God is not, we're not made in God's image, as I once believed. We have made the gods in our images and the reflection of nature. So all they are is anthropomorphized nature. That's all the gods are as you start to investigate.
1: Can I take this a step further and see how you feel about it? It When you hear, or when you were hearing your father saying, don't give up, That that was you as well. That was me. And the, the, I guess you'd say the lessons he taught
0: in my own voice in my head, taking what he said to the bank, it was me.
1: Yes, it wasn't really my father. No, exactly. But I mean, the strength came from within is what I mean. I, I don't mean literally it wasn't your father. Of course, literally it wasn't. But I mean, really, that obviously it came from what you learned growing up and all that. But it was you that did that.
0: Exactly. And I knew I needed to do it. So when I carried myself, when I saw two footprints in the sand, as the Jesus picture goes, it was me. It was the strength that I needed to find in myself and the people around me, which is another thing I always repeat. Because remember, fall in love with yourself. We evolved as a social creature. We're not meant to be lone wolves. I'm not going to say there aren't some people out there that are like, they just internalize and they go and they want to be in their own little cave. I'm saying we evolved as social creatures. We need each other. We need the relationships. We need to build that community. But it was me. And discovering that more and more made me realize oh, wow. Now I understand. I know why I believed and I can understand and empathize both with the believer and the drug addict. See, I also felt persecution myself in a weird way as a, as a, as a, Drug addict. I had a lot of comments on my YouTube channel early on that talked about you should just go and overdose. You're scum to society. You're not worth having around. Look at all that you guys do. You drug addicts destroy our our economic situation. Like I had people that wished that I died. And then there were some who were like, your story saved me. Like I'm not making this up. Thousands of people have contacted me over the years just from that YouTube channel that I made saying you made me realize I could do it because you could do it.
1: How does that feel?
0: It feels great to know because someone else did it for me. And the guy who made videos that did it originally and made it 30 days that inspired me, he overdosed and died. (gasps) And I found out
1: about it later. Oh, wow. So his videos were talking about the dangers of sort of being into drugs and that kind of thing? He was smoking, just smoking a little weed to kind of go through
0: withdrawals and stuff. And then he he like journeyed a few days. He relapsed. Like he had this YouTube channel where he was doing this stuff. And then he made it to 30 days and I saw something in his face. I saw light in his eyes. You know, you see there's dark pouches for people who are really deep in everyone under their eyes. They get like really bad bags and his eyes lit up the bags disappeared he had 30 days and he says maybe i can do it i mean i made it this far and i feel great i'm going to the gym I, maybe i can do it and when he when i saw he did that and the way he looked i went if he can do it maybe i can do it and then i did it and then he relapsed and filmed it and i guess they took his youtube channel channel down cuz he injected on camera They took his YouTube channel down, and then he contacted me a while back and felt inspired by the fact that he caused me. He wrote me. He was in a halfway house. He overdosed and died. And I found his his the paperwork to his funeral online one day, and I just went. The man who ultimately inspired me when I was up all
1: night because I could not sleep from opiate withdrawal died from opiates. I'm sorry to hear that. How how did that must have just taken? You're, you know, just that must have knocked you sideways. It really hurt because I never got the
0: chance to to interview him and talk to him and tell him how much. I mean, he heard videos where I said how much, but I didn't get to thank him like I wanted to thank him for just the thing he already did. It's not like he did anything extra. He already did this video. But his video alone made it made it to where I was like,
1: if he can do it, I can do it. Do you ever worry that you might relapse? I don't think about
0: it. To give you another analogy, to kind of give you where I'm at, I built walls between me and heroin. In my lifestyle, in the way that I live, in the way that I practice my behavior, if I feel anxious, if I feel this or that, I'll take a nap or I'll go do something like play a video game, I'll go to the gym, like anything, it's a healthy behavior. So my, I had called my new thing rewired addiction on the recovery side because you're, you're Your brain works in patterns, and the patterns are also behavioral. I'm no brain scientist, but I've read a little bit about this. And you work in a certain cycle, and this is why the behavioral, your frontal lobal cortex is shooting off, it's not right when you're in addiction. And it's disconnected from the midbrain. So I had to find a way to create a pattern in my mind through the behaviors I was doing to where that became the norm And so I built these walls, back to the analogy, and there's so many walls between me and opiates that I'd have to break down and do things I'm so uncomfortable doing and not even wanting to do that I don't see how I could. I really think, as 12-steppers would say, they have a term called, you are recovered. I don't desire it. The closest I come to relapse, Andrew, is I have a dream. That's the closest. And the other part that scares me, that is a reality, is if I get injured or something happens and I have to go to the hospital. That's the only other thing that I could think of that might be a fear.
1: But other than that, that's it. Stay stay safe then, Derek, no skiing holidays. Um, and last, last question, really. I just wanna know, I mean, how is your relationship now with your parents and how do they feel about you running a YouTube channel, a wonderful one called Myth Vision that I am always checking out and I've been on. Uh, how do they feel about you doing that? Great question.
0: And that episode we did was fire. So if anyone wants to check it out, check Andrew out. You're you're really oh, yeah. something, Andrew. I really enjoy you. Um, Get out of here. I'm serious, man. Make sure you write a check for me saying that later. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> mom and dad are actually really proud of me. Even though mom, dad is more like, probably cool with what I say. Mom's not so cool with the things I do and say. It's her Jesus, right? Um, But she's proud of me. And they can can trust me. They can rely on me. They actually, mom can leave her purse around. And guess what, Andrew? During those phases, my wife kept our kids okay. My wife kept the house okay. It wasn't me. Guess who's taking care of my wife and my kids now? Guess who gets to stay home and help me? She doesn't have to, I don't force her to do anything. But guess who gets to do that now, my wife? I have become a man, as we would call it. I have become the head of the house, in a sense. Like, like, But it's I don't rule with an iron fist. I'm like, <laughs> I am so, I feel good. I'm doing what I was meant to do. I was do. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And let me tell you, my dad's prouder than hell of me. And if my grandpa was alive, because he was a historian, the guy they made the fields after, he would probably be in tears finding out some of the historians that I've interviewed on my channel and going, Son, do you know who you just spoke with? I've admired him since 1970 something or whatever, you know? And he's probably, you know, I, I imagine he would roll over in his grave right now going, All right, Lambert. Good job, you made you make our name proud. That kind of thing, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Well, listen, I'm proud of you as well. I know that sounds patronizing. It's not often that someone says to someone, <laughs> "I'm proud of you." But I've just gone through this story with you. I feel like I've been there, and I feel like I was there with every punch and every roll of the dice and every moment. So I'm proud as well, and relieved, and happy to hear it. And I want to say to everyone listening and watching who's been affected by this, who's, 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 who's this resonates with, go check out Myth Vision. It's one word, Myth Vision. Derek Lambert's wonderful. YouTube channel uh, As I say I was on there before And it's, it's all, of, you know, all of your personal stories On there You interview similar people To who I do as well From cults and religions And all sorts of backgrounds um, And also stuff That I was going to ask you about But we didn't get time on this So we're going to have to do some, some more live things On YouTube And all that kind of thing Discussing things like Was Jesus a real Historical figure Was Moses one We're going to talk about All that stuff uh, Coming up Do you have any last Any last words Before I execute this video Derek I
0: absolutely do I'm thinking about the person who's suffering right now, and I want them to know whatever it is, addiction, religion, don't give up, don't stop. Get help, medical help. Don't do it on your own, don't do it on your couch. Go speak to a medical professional and get help. And if it's some trauma from religion, speak to a medical professional that understands the behavior, the mind, a psychologist, someone, get professional help don't go trusting gurus online don't go doing any of that real help do it don't give up
1: thank you for tuning in and please do follow derek's brilliant youtube channel myth vision all one word myth vision happy christmas to you all the next episode is about a yoga cult in india that's this saturday see you all soon it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you
0: win like are you a fist pumper